0: Uh, so what's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am one of the uh, pastors here at Renaissance, and always grateful to have you guys with us. You want to know something crazy? Seven or 800 years ago, if you really wanted to flex on somebody, uh, you would have a book, specifically a Bible. A Bible, seven, 800 years ago, would be like buying a Lamborghini. It's still like having a... It's, it's, not, it's that good, but not that expensive, praise God. <laughs> now, the reason it was so expensive was because you had to have a master scribe, someone who had all of the credentials, as high credentialed as a surgeon. This master scribe would spend weeks and months and months hand copying, hour by hour, a Bible. There was no printing press. There were no way to, fastly, to quickly produce a Bible. Now, this master scribe, a good one, could do about four to five pages an hour. In a full working day, they can get you 30 or 40 pages of written material. Now, that's not even something we would ever think about. Now, you can print 1,000 pages a minute with a good commercial printer. Now we can have books and and books, and most of you have so many books that's on your shelf collecting dust, stuff that you haven't read and you promised that you were going to read it since New Year's. That was your New Year's resolution you still haven't done it. Because nowadays, things that used to take so much time, no longer take that much time. A couple hundred years ago, we had this also industrial revolution. So now, not only do we have the printing press and the ability to reproduce things more quickly, We also have the ability to put something on a factory line and what used to take months takes minutes. Now, these are really good things. I'm all for technology. If you check my Amazon Prime account, you would know this, uh, very true. But the problem that that presents for us today is that since we have mastered the ability to mass produce books and cars and different things, oftentimes we assume incorrectly that change in our life could also happen as quickly. One of the biggest challenges to modern Christianity is the speed in which everything else around us happens. And it's a challenge because we assume that everything else in our life, including our spiritual lives, should happen as quickly. When Jesus talked about our spiritual lives and our spiritual world and our growth and our maturation, he never used language for manufacturing. Instead, he uses the language of agriculture in better words, Jesus is basically saying that your walk with God is not like an assembly line where you have different people stamping different things, and then in, in about 20 minutes, out pops a brand new Hyundai. When Jesus spoke about our spiritual lives, he talked about it in the concept of seeds and sowing, that there is something that has been planted inside of you, and that thing would eventually, certainly not overnight, bring growth. In Matthew 13, Jesus lists uh, three different parables where he talks about spiritual growth and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in verse 31, he says, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. God growing inside of you starts with a seed, something small, Something that does not look significant, but it has a capacity to become the largest thing in the field. Now, this is really important because no one who listened to Jesus, no one in the world that the Bible was written in would have understood growth to be something that would happen immediately. Because you never plant and and reap in the same day. There's always a gap between what you sow and what you reap. Things, good things, take time to develop It takes not just time to develop, but also time to appear. Things are growing alive beneath the surface, sometimes for years before they finally break through through the surface. And once you do see the plant or the tree start to grow, it takes time to ripen and mature. A few weeks ago in my community group, one of my friends mentioned that he grew up around apple trees. And he said that apple trees take five years before you can have any edible fruit from them. So year one, even there's no fruit on it whatsoever. Year two, still no fruit. Years three and four, there's fruit, but it's not really edible. It takes an apple tree five years before you can ever walk up to it, pluck something off of it, and eat it. What does that tell us about the nature of our walk with God? It tells us that what God wants to do in you is real, but it's not necessarily going to be immediate. Now, that's a warning for us because so many people... Um, fall into one of these two categories. One, you're just discouraged in the pace in which things are growing in your life. And maybe there's a problem, something that needs to be undone to to see some more growth, but uh, I, I would think that the bigger problem is we don't always understand how real growth works. The other group of people are just really hard on others, almost as if the things that they understand and live out now should be something that everyone else just gets. Why don't you get this? Why don't you understand this? Now there's a man named John Bloom and he and a a number of other psychologists and and scholars, uh, they have come together and it's been something that I've learned in the last couple of years and it's been transformative for my life. They developed a a model on how real growth, how real transformation happens in your life. Uh, We tend to think in one of two ways, either I know something or I don't know something. So if someone starts talking about something that you've heard before, or you know you say, yeah, I've heard that before, I know that. My question is not what you know. My question is, how is what you knowing, how is that transforming your life? You can know a lot of things, but it doesn't mean it's actually transforming your life. Uh, So John Bloom and the other scholars, they walk through this process of what it means to be transformed. Uh, It's five stages. Um, It's awareness, curiosity, value, prioritizing, and owning. Now, we don't understand that it always takes a long time and many small incremental steps for us to truly get something. Uh, For example, quick example, Mother Teresa has never read more scripture about God's heart for the poor than I have. She and I, we know the exact amount of the same scripture that says God's care for those who are the most vulnerable. But yet, she spent decades in her life caring for the poorest of the poor uh, in remote parts of the world, and I spent my yesterday morning trying to buy sneakers online, (laughs) which I didn't even get, by the way. That's That's the real tragedy in this whole story. We know the same thing, but information and transformation are not the same. So the first step is awareness. Awareness is where you know what something is. Somebody teaches you something, you read something, and now this idea, this brand new idea, has emerged in your brain as a possibility for your life. Awareness is simply just that. Now you are made aware to what something is. The next step is curiosity. Curiosity is now you move from awareness where you start to ask yourself questions. How could this take root in my life? Uh, how could this actually be implemented in my life and this is a long process where we spend time thinking and talking to ourselves about it the next one is where you start to where you value something now you know you value something when you start to put it into practice the journey from head to heart always always travels through the road where you start to implement small things in practice Now, when you value it, it, it's not something that you're doing every single day, maybe, but it's something that you're starting to put into practice. You're starting to put your pinky toe in the water a little bit. Uh, The next step is prioritizing, and now you've moved from just valuing it. Now you're prioritizing this in your life. Now this truth that you've been made aware of, and now you know how to implement it, now you're starting to prioritize this in your life, and that the last one is owning. And now owning is where you orient everything in your life around this truth. The difference between me and Mother Teresa in, with respect to how our attitude towards uh, money and finances, I'm aware of some things, she owned some things. Quick example of how this has worked in my life, um, and then we'll go to the scripture for today and then we'll apply that to how it can work in your life. Um, a few years ago, before we started Renaissance, man, I noticed probably the worst physical, spiritual and emotional health of my life. I worked so much that it was literally killing me. I was getting sick every single, I was getting sick left and right. Um, My relationships weren't the same. I I never really talked to family uh, nearly as much. My wife and I, we couldn't go out for more than 30 seconds without me talking about work. It really started to dominate me. And I heard a message uh, on slowing down and practicing this thing called Sabbath. Uh, And Sabbath was basically a principle from the Old Testament that would come into the life of a a follower of Jesus that says, for 24 hours, separate yourself from your work, physically. Like, don't just say, oh, I'm not going to think about it, but actually stop right in your tracks, don't do any work, so that your identity could be separated from uh, what you do to who you are. I first became aware of this practice and its potential help for me six years ago, and I moved from that to curiosity, which was asking the questions, all right, so this is a good thing, rest Stopping is a good thing, but you know how would that work in my life? What are some good parameters? My wife and I settled on Fridays, that Fridays, for the most part, would be the day that we didn't work. And then I moved to valuing it, where I started slowly but surely implementing it into my life. Maybe out of every month, I would do two, where I didn't work on that Friday. But I started to notice in my life that, man, I'm a whole lot less anxious when I actually stop. I'm, like, way more calm. I'm, I'm able to think about different things when I spend the day not working at all. I moved from valuing it to prioritizing it. And now, for the most part, I don't miss a Friday away from work. Friday at noon till Saturday at noon, JL was away from the computer. If you need something, call the cops, because I ain't got nothing for you. <laughs> By me seeing all of the good things that have happened in my life, valuing it, I started to prioritize it, and now uh, I don't know that I own it just yet, uh, but I'm moving towards the direction of owning it, that I'm orienting my entire life to make sure that I have a regular rhythm of being away from work so I could be with Jesus. The process from me being aware to me being where I'm at now is six years. In this six years, I have not learned anything new. I haven't gotten more information but I've gotten a whole lot more transformation. Why is that? As we continue to devote ourselves, the seeds inside of us, they will grow. Now, this is extremely important because when we talk about the stuff we're going to talk about um, today and we get into the the scripture, um, I don't want those of you who, you might be hearing this concept for the first time, I don't want you to be overwhelmed. I don't want you feeling like, Man, this whole Christianity thing is so far above my pay grade that I'll never be where I, where I want to be. Other people seem to be made more aware. They seem to be farther down the line than I am. Maybe for you, this is just something of awareness. Maybe you just need to be made aware of what the scripture is saying today and to really start that process of uh, curiosity of asking yourself how it could apply in your life. For others of you, um, man, you probably would have heard this before. Some of the stuff we're gonna talk about today, you would have heard it dozens of times. My question for you is not what do you know. My question for you is what you know, how is that transforming your life? The same jeopardy. We don't get points for knowing random facts about statistics or different things. In our life, we, we grow not by the mere things that we know, but how these things are actually transforming our lives. So today I want to talk about a scripture from Genesis 15 as we continue our Genesis series, this time focusing in on the stories of people. And today we're looking at a story, again, about a man named Abraham. And Abraham was one of the pillars in the Old Testament, also known as the father of the faith. Uh, Basically, Abraham was a very big deal. You cannot talk about Judeo-Christianity without talking about Abraham It's like you cannot talk about the NBA without talking about LeBron. He's one of the all-time greats, no matter what you think about it. Um, So Abraham was uh, a man, and he's also known as the father of faith. Abraham and his wife were trying to have a child, specifically a son, so that they can have an heir. In those days, heirs uh, were your firstborn son, and they inherited your estate. In a lot of ways, they kept your family name alive. To them, it was a very big deal, and Abraham and his wife prayed for years and years and years that they would have a son, and they were getting older and older, and they started to doubt whether or not it would really happen. Now, Abraham, up to this point, was a man of faith, and he followed God down some really uncertain paths, and here's where the story picks up, where Abraham is starting to doubt whether or not God's promises will ever happen, and it says in Genesis 15, verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur to the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, A deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Catamites, Heathites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites, and Harlemites. <laughs> now this is a pretty peculiar scripture if you've never heard it before what is all the stuff about animals being cut in half and arranged on the pieces and this flaming pot coming and darkness coming over uh, the land this is a covenant ceremony this is really important that we understand the nature of covenants because it's almost impossible to understand who God is without understanding covenants. I want you to imagine for a second that someone comes from North Korea to America to start a business. Now the way things operate in North Korea is certainly not an open set of, of, of capitalism. It's a very different system. And if you put that person who doesn't understand American capitalism, and if you put them in America, how well will their business operate? Nobody, and I mean nobody, can run a business in America without understanding capitalism. Even though nobody says it out loud, it's underneath everything, everything, everything we do in business. The same truth is true for you in understanding covenants. It's impossible to understand God because God and God making covenants is underneath everything that God does. In every relationship that God has with people, it is all based in covenants. When he brings the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant with them. After the flood with Noah, God made a covenant. When God approaches Abraham in this text, uh, he makes a covenant. When God brings the nation of Israel out of exile and speaks to them through Jeremiah, it's a reminder of the covenant. Now, this is not just the Old Testament, but also the New. When Jesus shows up, he he says, What I have come to do is to bring you into a new covenant. When God relates to people, he relates covenantally. When you want to relate to God, it is also through going to be through a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a formal, indefinite, and self-giving promise of two parties, one to another. A formal, indefinite, no time limit, no expiration, self-giving promise of two parties to another. Now, the best way to understand covenants in some way is to describe what it is not. A covenant is similar to a contract, but it's not a contract. Contracts are consumer-based. In a contract, you negotiate to get something. In a covenant, you negotiate to get someone. All of us who have signed a lease have felt the pains of signing a contract. And you promise your landlord your left arm for your monthly rent in exchange for your ability to live in a home. What happens if uh, you don't pay that rent? Is he going to say, you know what? I'm just so glad that I met you. And you know, you and me, we're together forever. You're going to be together in landlord and tenant court as he's trying to get you evicted. Contract wants something. Covenant wants someone. Now, years ago, covenants were very common what normally would happen is it would happen between, oftentimes, rulers of different nations. And one nation would usually, in exchange for the protection and provision from another nation, they would exchange in a covenant. So it would be like the United States and the United States Virgin Islands. In exchange for money and, and privileges, uh, uh, the uh, Virgin Islands gets different uh, protections and provisions from the United States. Now. What always happened in all of these covenants was a ceremony, and this ceremony is actually where we get the phrase, uh, to cut a deal, because what they would do is they would take uh, these animals and they would cut them in half, and they would arrange them on both sides, and the leader from the lower nation would say, may it be unto me as it is to these other animals, these unfortunate animals, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, They were essentially promising and agreeing to their own destruction if they were disloyal. So Abraham is charged to set up this covenant ceremony, and Abraham, no doubt in his mind, thinks that he's going to be the one that walks through these pieces, that God is going to make him walk through these pieces and say, God, may it be unto me as it is these unfortunate animals if I don't keep up my end of the deal. What happens next in the text is absolutely unthinkable, um, and it shows us so much about the nature of God. Abraham does not walk to the two pieces. He falls asleep. It says, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot, which represented God, and a flaming torch appeared and passed through the divided animals. God, not Abraham, was making this pledge, saying that I myself will be torn to pieces unless I bless you and your descendants. What does it say about God? This says that God's faithfulness and God's grace is not dependent on you. It's dependent on him. Yes, that's good. Give God a round of for that. There's a scripture that says, even if we are faithless, even if we are faithless, he is faithful. God is a God that makes and keeps covenants at his own peril. Hundreds of years after this covenant ceremony between Abraham and uh, God was entered into, uh, we see something in the New Testament uh, which being foreshadowed by the Old Testament helps us to understand what God is like. Why did Jesus have to come on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? What did it accomplish? What was all going on behind the surface? 400 years after Abraham and God entered into this ceremony, The sky again grew black, but this time it was Jesus on the cross. Jesus' closest followers were sleeping when Jesus needed them the most. And as the sky grew black and darkness again descended on the mountain, Jesus Christ was being ripped apart in half for your sin and mine. Uh, The author Paul says it like this in the book of Galatians. And so much of the New Testament, all of the New Testament is being built directly off of these this principle of God being a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. So Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. What curse is this? It's the curse of us breaking the covenant with God. The curse of the law that requires complete obedience. And since God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, this scripture is saying that Jesus Christ himself uh, was suffering our penalty of sin since he himself walked through the animals and promised to pay for our penalty. Now, you cannot understand the gospel, you cannot understand Christianity if you do not understand and live this truth. And I'm not just talking about awareness, but that this truth makes it from your head to your heart. Now, most of us approach God in one of these two ways. Um, uh, the first way is that either I can do whatever I want and nothing matters, or if God, if God is upset with me because I don't do everything the way that I'm supposed to do, God is going to withdraw all his goodness and his grace from me. That's called moralism. Uh, the way that most of us understand Christianity is not Christianity at all. And the, what you hate about Christianity is probably not Christianity. One of the things that so many people believe is this thing called moralism, which is that our faith plus our good behavior equals justification and right standing with God. This is not the gospel at all. Um, now, moralism, uh, I don't want to let you off the hook if you think that, hey, I'm not even that religious of a person. I don't, you know, this church stuff is kind of new to me. I'm not like these other people who are Jesus Jr. I don't even get down like that. Moralism doesn't necessarily mean that you're even religious. It just means that you believe deep down inside that your standing with God depends on you and not his grace. Right. Now, more, conservatives tend, more conservative people tend to believe that it's based on personal ethics. Don't curse, don't do this, don't have sex with this person, um, don't root for the patriots, and then you will be, <laughs> you will be a morally upright person. More liberal uh, moralists, focus on social ethics. So it's all about how woke you are. It's all about how your behavior affects the greater society at large. If you wanna see some of the most moralistic people, it's not just the Pharisees, it's not just people wearing religious robes, it's also people on the other side as well. You don't have to be religious to believe that your good behavior is actually what is qualifying you for standing with God. And you know this is true because so much of our dialogue today, especially politically, is all about making other people feel shame, that they're not worth it, that they're not not even valuable. How dare you think like that? What's underneath that? That since they're not doing a good job, they don't measure up. Now, the other side of this, uh, lest you hear me say something that I'm not saying, the other side of this is what people call relativism, which is my faith alone, that's it, equals justification no matter what I do. So God doesn't really care about how I live. God doesn't really care about what I do, my shortcomings. All that matters is he loves me, and that's it, and that God doesn't have any real concern about how I live. And um, we see in the Scripture how God being a God of covenants, what does this mean? This means that God takes sin very seriously. So much so, as 2 Corinthians says in the fifth chapter, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, God goes on the cross in the person of Jesus to pay for our sin. It wasn't just because he didn't have anything else to do. It means that God takes our sin extremely seriously. So it is neither, it's neither that it's all up to us or, and it's definitely not that life doesn't matter, but the gospel is a brand new motivation for us living in line line with God's command. That God, our covenant God, our graceful God, loves us so much that he himself paid the penalty And he simultaneously takes our sins so seriously that he paid the debt himself. This is why in 1 Peter, if you'll notice New Testament authors, the way they'll talk about motivations for Christian living, uh, they don't come to you and say, you need to stop doing this. You need to start doing that. They always go back to the cross as our motivation. So in 1 Peter, he says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, the way that you were acting when you were and out. Here's the motivation that that Peter is getting to. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Here's Peter saying, listen, it's not up to you, so I don't want you beating yourself up and feeling so much guilt. I don't want that for your life. But don't you know that you were redeemed not with silver or gold, stuff that could be bought back, but with the precious blood of our lamb. Would we treat that like it was worthless. This is why Paul says in Romans 6, shall we continue to sin so that grace may continue? God forbid. Not because God's grace isn't enough. Jesus is a much better savior than you are a sinner. But why? How could we see the sacrifice, the length to which God went to, how could we trample on that? Uh, The gospel presents a brand new motivation for living. Now for some of you guys, uh, let's go back to this, this transformation process. Uh, you're, this is a self-diagnosing uh, chart, and again, my, my question to you is not what do you know about the gospel, what you can say in a, in a quiz, how you can recite something. My question is how is this God of covenants whose grace and mercy does not depend on you but on him and his promises, how is that actually transforming your life? For some of you guys, it's, it's awareness in that Uh, You're just learning this, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to spare yourself a decade of misery like I once did, spending my life thinking that unless I lived up to everything, that God was going to take his faithfulness away from me. It was a decade spent in fear and anxiety, so much so that when I was in college, I genuinely uh, lived my life in complete and utter fear. I would memorize entire books of the Bible because I thought, this is what I have to do to earn God's love. It wasn't gratitude that motivated me. It wasn't anything other than uh, fear. What that did to me is it made me a legitimate Pharisee. You would have absolutely hated to be around me because I judged everything everybody did. It's a miserable life. The day that I would miss reading the Bible, I would feel so bad and so guilty that I would like, make up for it and reach like, an hour the next day. Is that the spiritual life that any of us want? There was no gratitude. There was no freedom. It was all obligation. If this is new for you, I want you to walk in this beautiful truth, and I want to replace whatever narrative you had about who God is and adopt this one. God is faithful. It is truly all about grace, and that grace changes everything. <clears throat> And I don't want you just to stay there, but I also want you, to, I want you to start doing the hard work of asking yourself the questions. And this is where your community group is helpful if you're in one. How, how is this going to play into your life? How are you going to start to move this from your head to, to your heart? How is this truth going to start to make its way into the way that you actually view God and view yourself and view other people? Now, that's, I can't answer that question for you, but it's a process that might take some time for you to really think about it. And, ask yourself, what have I been believing about who God is? And then from there, to move towards valuing. And valuing is what we start to put into practice, where we start to dabble with uh, what Scripture commands us to do. Now, how would you start to value the gospel, and how uh, would you start to value this concept that God is a covenant-keeping uh, God at his own expense? I'm very glad you asked that question. Most of you in here, probably right now, have someone that you probably should forgive that you don't want to. Why is that? What are you believing about God? What if God treated us the same way we treat other people? There's a scripture that tells us we should imitate Christ. Here's what I want you to do. At the cost of yourself, I want you to absorb what they have done to you, and I want you to forgive them. Forgiveness does not mean giving them a license and a permission slip to do it again. I'm not saying be stupid. I am saying... That this belief that you have that they do not deserve grace and mercy based on what they have done to you, and this desire that you have to get them back, that is not going to lead you to a place where you are deepening your understanding of the gospel. But as you start to imitate the life of Christ, and you start to put this into practice, that at your own expense, you're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps. At your own expense, you're going to forgive someone who has wronged you. And watch what that does to your life. So much of what we think Jesus commands us in scripture is for them, but it's actually for us. When Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, he's not saying it for them. He's saying it for you. How this could transform you. If you actually sat down and started to pray for these people, you start to understand grace more. It would make its way from it, from your head to your heart. Now, as you are starting to dabble in these things, uh, and we're moving towards prioritizing and owning, uh, one of my challenges that I want to, loft out to you, particularly if you feel like you are more mature in this process, is prioritizing living out the gospel story on a daily basis in your life. Now, again, if you're in the awareness stage uh, and you're just kind of you're you're new to church and you're back to church and in a relationship with Jesus for the first time in a long time or ever, I'm not telling you you have to wake up and read the Bible for an hour a day every day. I'm not saying do that. But for those of you who claim to have a more mature faith. Uh, how, how many days do you go without reminding yourself of this truth? Jesus says in Matthew 4, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need God's words and his thoughts to wash over us. So much of outside corrupts us. It drags us back to this meritocracy where everything we do is dependent on us. And we need the words of God to remind us who we are. And the last one is ownership. We start to own this for ourselves. And we not just are believing in this covenantal God, but we are now in a covenantal community of other people who are all going in the same direction. Eventually, what we're probably going to do is change the way that we talk about membership here at Renaissance. Um, And instead of members, we're going to probably call it covenantal membership. And that just sounds deeper, but go with me on this one. (laughs) Uh, Why is that? I'm a member to a lot of things, right? I'm a member with Delta Sky SkyMiles. <laughs> well, why is that? Because I, if I fly enough, Delta gives me perks and privileges. They let me go into the Sky Lounge so I don't have to sit around the normal people. I can go. <laughs> and, and then eventually, every now and then, you know what I'm saying? Delta says, let me upgrade you, right? And they throw me and they upgrade. Yes, yes. (laughs) And they upgrade you and I could just, see some people put their heads down when they're in first class, not me, I look up. I look at everybody. We make eye contact when when I'm in first class. It's pretty easy to understand our membership, even in a church, uh, not as a commitment to a covenantal community, where oftentimes you're going to give more than you get. But as we, actually, we, we tend to think about it in terms of what we can get. The greatest, threat to, the greatest threat to your relationship with God in American Christianity is this thing called consumerism. I'm a part of it too, so this is not me stepping on the high or on my soapbox. So much of us, so many of us, we, we view everything, including church, as what we can get out of it. First Thessalonians, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. What does that mean? That means the day that you're tired and you had a long day and you don't feel like going to community group, what's beneath that? It's, I don't feel like I want to get anything out of tonight, so I'm just not going to go. To move towards ownership, where you start to see the flourishing of this body of believers here at Renaissance as part of the reason why you exist. And to move towards ownership, where you and I own not just our own lives, but also Lives of others. Now, what else should we do with this concept of covenant? There's two things that the New Testament calls us to do with this great teaching and uh, doctrine of God being a God of covenants. The first is uh, identifying with Jesus, and the second is to remember Jesus. Now, I would hate for you guys to listen to a message like today and to think that nothing is required of you. I remember when I was a freshman in college, uh, I took a freshman orientation class, it was one credit. And the only thing required of you was that you showed up. My boy would literally lay out in the, in, the, in, the, in the aisle and take a nap, put his shirt over his eyes and just take a nap for an hour. And when the class was over, he would get up and go back to his room. Why was his engagement that low? Because nothing was required of us. All we had to do was show up. No tests, no exams, no papers, no quizzes, nothing. Just show up. The Bible warns against not responding to God with our own lives because it talks about it in James as something that we do to almost fool ourselves, to kid ourselves. So there's two things scripture calls us to do um, in the New Testament. One is to first identify with him and two chapters after this in Genesis 17, after God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him, God then invites to Abraham uh, to, for Abraham to enter into a covenant with him. The way they did it in those days was circumcision, And now people do circumcision for health reasons. They did it as a way to externally signify that they were with God. Now, even though it's something that is external and it wasn't necessarily changing their hearts or their attitudes, it was very valuable in the way that they identified with being a people of God. There's something very moving about baptism in the New Testament which talks about uh, it in the same way that circumcision was done In the Old Testament, it says in Colossians 2, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, but by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, um, six years, I believe, ago, okay, six years ago, I got married and uh, <laughs> I do know the date. I had to check my phone, but I know the date. Uh, <laughs> Six years ago, I was standing across from my wife, Jessica, and um, I was publicly committing my love and my life to her. What was happening publicly had already happened a thousand times privately. She was not hearing anything new that day other than a promise for me to clean up and not watch as much ESPN, but everything else she had heard um, before then. My love for her hadn't changed, hadn't elevated just because I was in front of my grandmother and my parents and those other people. But what did change was I was now making a public commitment of love to her and fidelity and faith to her in front of other people. And to this date, it's one of the most moving experiences of my life. In the New Testament, it asks Christians and it calls Christians to be baptized in front of their faith family as an external signification of what has already happened internally in your life. It does this so that you and I would identify with Christ. Now, if you... um, read the New Testament, you'll see so often that whenever an adult would come to faith in Jesus, the first thing that they would do is get baptized. Not because it made a whole lot of sense to them. There's probably a lot of you guys who have questions about that, but because this is a way that they would identify with Christ. And God calls us to that uh, identification with him. Matthew 28 and 20, when Jesus leaves his disciples with the charge, he tells them, go into all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've never been adult, uh, baptized as an adult, and you want to make pledge of faith, and you haven't done it before, and you're growing in your faith, and you want to express this external thing, you want to express this beautiful internal reality that's happened externally in front of your faith family, next Sunday, after both services, we're having a next step class to talk about baptism. Come with your questions, come with your concerns. You're not committing to anything by coming to the class. You're not committing to anything by coming to the class. You can come, sit down, eat the free pastries, and leave. Nobody is holding you down for anything. But I would hate for you to, to miss this thing about what it means to respond to God's covenant uh, in baptism. It's something that so many New Testament believe everyone has done. And I, I don't want you to take a shortcut. I don't want you to exclude yourself from that. The second thing is what we're going to do right now is a sacrament called communion. And uh, one reason that we tell people at Renaissance to sit down during communion, if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, is not to be exclusive, but because Jesus talks about this practice of communion in such an amazing and tender way that he reserved for people who placed their faith in him. It's not just about the bread and the wine. It's a reenactment of when Jesus himself went to the cross. Jesus, when he talked about this to his disciples, he says, and when he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. Just like the pieces of the covenant ceremony were broken and spread out on both sides, Jesus was breaking his body to signify that he is the one that keeps our covenant with God. Jesus gave it to them and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup of the supper after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. During this next song, if you have placed your faith in Christ, I invite you to come up to remember Jesus. We do this often because we could never remember it enough that our life with God, our relationship with God is as secure as God and his words, which he has proven to us on the cross. Paul says this in Romans 8.32, and I'll leave you with these words. If he did not spare his son, if he did not spare his son, how much more along with him will he graciously give us all things? God has proven and demonstrated his love for us in that. So if you want to remember Christ, I invite you to leave your guilt and come to receive with gratitude Jesus, our covenant-keeping king. Come at this time.